Hello and welcome to Haaretz Weekly. I'm Allison Kaplan Summer. This is a special episode of the podcast recorded at the recent J Street Conference in Washington, D.C. At the event, I moderated a panel headlined A Deep Dive into Israeli Politics. Indeed, the panelists dove deep, analyzing what just happened in the recent Israeli elections and looking ahead to what we can expect on the political horizon. The participants in the session were Dr. Dalia Shenlin, a public opinion expert and strategic consultant and a columnist for Haaretz. She's well known to our listeners as the co-host of the Election Overdose podcast, which was broadcast during the recent campaign. Gadi Baltiansky, the Director General of the Geneva Initiative and a former press secretary for former Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Barak. Also, Sally Abed, a national leader of Standing Together. That's a grassroots movement which mobilizes Jewish and Palestinian citizens of Israel in pursuit of peace, equality, and social justice. Each panelist responded to my questions, followed by questions from the audience. Let's dive in. As a journalist on the ground in Israel, I've covered Israel's five elections in the past three and a half years. For those keeping score, four of those elections resulted either in a deadlock and inability to form a government or a short-lived coalition, the last of which lasted the longest, nearly uh, had its uh, year-long birthday. And finally, this last fifth election, a decisive win for former and future Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and his bloc, with the stage set for the most right-wing, orthodox, religiously fundamentalist government in Israel's history. As we've heard in previous sessions here at the J Street Conference, this government will include coalition partners who have a stated intent to change the face of Israel in ways that most of us and many Israelis find alarming. So conversations about the election and the state of Israeli politics right now fall into two broad categories. One is what the heck just happened, and the other is what's going to happen now. So Dalia, after digging into the numbers, do you see an Israeli electorate that has transformed as radically as this change in government will reflect? Was there really a major shift to the right between the fourth and fifth elections, or was this merely a case of chess playing? Who was a better chess player that Benjamin Netanyahu masterfully manipulated his block much better than Yair Lapid um, managed his? And following on that question, taking a more long-term view, what are the trends you see that got us to this place in which the center-left is in a position of what looks like permanent electoral weakness? When you look at the trends, do you see any path to changing, reversing it, or are you rather fatalistic about its permanence? I think the first part of the question is in a way easier to answer. Was there a major transformation between the fourth and the fifth election? And for people who aren't following every single election cycle, four of them were not conclusive. And the parties supporting Netanyahu simply didn't have a majority. They couldn't get 61 out of 120 seats. And in the current election campaign, those parties supporting Netanyahu forming the next government, won 64 out of 120. That's why we say it's an enormous difference. But in fact, we're talking about very small percentage point differences. So the difference when you calculate percentage voting to mandates out of 120, the difference between 59 or 58 seats and 64 is a few percentage points. They are critical. And that's Netanyahu's big victory between the fourth and the fifth cycle. If you count the number of Knesset seats that went to parties that espouse right-wing ideologies, 
uh, or representing individual Knesset members, because parties, even the parties themselves are not entirely monolithic. But if you try to categorize what it means to be right-wing in Israel, which generally means right-wing on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict before any other issue, I count 74 seats out of 120 out, who are basically supporting right-wing approaches. And that includes, that's my decision to include four members of the National Unity Party that came with Gidon Saar, who was a breakaway from Likud. He is a right-wing Likud figure. And the people who represent his party, which merged with Benny Gantz in this sort of right centrist, you know, more or less comfortable or uncomfortable merging. If you include those, we're talking about 74 seats. But in the last cycle, the number of parties that represented right-wing ideology were 72 seats. And that's a really small percentage difference in terms of the breakdown. So if there was a big change, it wasn't exactly between the fourth and the fifth election cycle, but between the first three and the fourth. And in fact, the number of seats that went to parties that are categorized as right-wing, and it's not just my categorization, I'm also talking about how Israelis perceive those parties, for a long time, now how long, it depends on how you count the parties, but I would say for most of the last 20 years, those right-wing ideological parties, unrelated to how they felt about Netanyahu, were reaching in the mid-60 seat range out of 120, with the peak of 69 seats in 2003. Okay, and since then, they were getting 65 seats, 67 seats, 63 seats, 65 again, Again, leaving coalition building dynamics aside. And suddenly we saw in the fourth election, 72 seats, now 74 seats. So in the fourth election, I explained it away. I said, well, it's not really a leap in the number of right-wing Israelis. It's because the right-wing split over Netanyahu and parties were created that left the right-wing, like Yidon Saar's party, and pulled in a bunch of centrists to support them. But now we have another election in which we saw the same number and a little bit more of ideological right-wing parties and members. In Israeli elections, there is often a, what we call a protest vote. People who, like, you know, it could be five, six, seven seats worth of votes, who suddenly at the last minute choose a party that people didn't really expect, or even if the polls did predict it, somehow surprised everybody, a new party, a party that's up and coming and everybody's talking about that party. In 1999, those votes went to Shas. Shas got 17 seats, nobody predicted it. They've never managed to recreate that success. In 2003, 15 seats altogether, all and polls were predicting six or seven, went to the party called Shinui, which is, was sort of a centrist party. And now we had this 14 seats going to religious Zionism. I'm starting with a baseline. They had six seats in the outgoing Knesset, but they got all these extra seats. So to some extent, they became the anti-establishment protest party, but we have many more of them going to the right wing. But it's not that different from in 1999. So sometimes those protest votes, the anti-establishment votes go to the right wing, sometimes to the center. One time it went to a party called the Pensioners Party, which was retirees, but they pulled in a lot of young people. So that can happen. And the other thing I think that we need to keep in mind is that, yes, there was some um, of the bad luck that comes when you have a complicated political system, 3.25% threshold for entering Knesset. Each party that is small has to gamble as to whether they'll cross it or not. 
It's a matter of a few hundred or a few thousand votes, whether you reach 3.24, 3.25, or 3.26. And when you say, did Yair Lapid not manage the block well of center and left-wing parties, who's to say he has the final word? It's, as much as it's tempting to look at this as a two-party system, it is not a two-party system, it's a 40-party system. Now, not all those parties get into parliament because of the 3.25% threshold, but every party leader makes his or her own decision. And I think you all know where I'm going with this. You know, the left-wing parties, there was an expectation that they would unify merits and labor. They didn't do it. Many people blame the head of the Labor Party, Merav Mikhaeli, for not merging, as if we are sure that that would have given a better result. I am not sure, as a pollster. I have no indication that they would have done much better than they did if they had merged, for reasons that I'm happy to defend. But the fact is, even, even, if Meretz had crossed the threshold, and the other gamble, Balad, right, the Arab party that split from the joint list, um, and did not cross the threshold, all of those votes are wasted. So it, that's not necessarily Yair Lapid's choice. He wanted Meretz and Labor to get together. They didn't do it. Balad made its own decision to run separately. But let's, so, and, and it was, let's say, bad luck, because all of those votes were wasted. Had one or both of those parties crossed the threshold, Netanyahu either would have had a much slimmer majority or maybe even not a majority. But even if they had, would they have been able to form a government? We were just there. We just saw what happened over the last year. That's the deeper problem when it comes to analyzing this election. So I don't really think it was purely a matter of the campaign dynamics because a little bit of bad luck, and even if they had managed to get a majority for the opposition parties, we have no reason to be sure that they could have formed a government at all. And the la uh, okay, so now I still have a little time to talk about the long-term trends because you did ask about what is the more fundamental shift over time. Okay, so if I've argued that the big shift wasn't between the fourth and the fifth election, but between the first three and the fourth, and the longer term, because I also reminded us that the right-wing parties have been getting in the mid-60 seat range for the last 20 years, so what's happening? The longer term is that over time, more and more Israeli citizens, Jewish citizens primarily, are identifying themselves as right-wing, are identif you know, identify with right-wing policies and ideologies over time. In the late 1990s, we had about 40% of Jewish Israelis who identified as right-wing. I'll give you a few landmarks, okay? The number began to rise a little bit during the Second Intifada, but a little bit more after the disengagement from Gaza. And then a little bit more at the very end of the 2000s, when Netanyahu took power again. That's when we started to see a more incremental rise. I think it started just below 50, and it crossed the 50% line in the early years of Netanyahu's return. Okay, by the middle of the last decade, of the 2010s or whatever we call them now, that number reached over in the 55% range and kind of languished there. We had one war in Gaza, another war in Gaza, four wars in Gaza, and the number kept rising in the Israeli environment that we see. And for a long time, it was at the upper 50% range. And I kept saying in all of my talks, over 55% of Israelis identify as right-wing, but actually Jews. The average of the whole Israeli population is brought down by the Palestinian citizens, very small percentage who identify as right-wing. So in, let's say in the total population, it was about 50%. But what we saw from 2018-19, basically throughout the course of these four election cycles, 
is that that number of Israeli Jews who identify as right-wing, which had been in the upper 50% range for a long time, finally crossed 60%. And today, based on the last three tracking surveys I've been able to see or do myself, we're talking about 64% who identify as right-wing. So it should be no surprise that we see the election results we do. You know, we have many things that are missing about the concept of democracy in Israel. But one of the things that we do have is a fairly strong process of electoral integrity and normative integrity. Because when I test how people identify themselves as right, left, or center, if we add those percentages all together and we categorize the parties and look at the actual percentages of the votes those parties got, it's a very accurate reflection. The election results reflect who Israeli society is right now. Inevitable permanence, or do you see any events that yeah. could possibly change? If I'm just looking at the data and the numbers, no chance. <laughs> but it's not only about the data. There's a world out there. People are human beings. They change their minds. They find surprising things in common when they need to. By the way, for a long time, my only answer to that question was, no, I don't see any hope in the data, mm -hmm. but there's a pendulum shift sometimes everywhere in the world. That was my <laughs> only answer. But now I have a different answer, which yeah. is that because the electoral results have led us to such an extreme situation, I think there's a very broad swath of Israeli society that is very nervous right now that has nothing to do with who we represent. Gadi, in this challenging environment for an organization like the Geneva Initiative, where does this election leave the left and advocates for the two-state solution and civil rights? Um, from what I saw in the election campaign, left-wing parties bent over backwards to avoid talking about peace or the Palestinians in order not to alienate voters. They stuck to domestic issues and still they were decimated at the polls. How can activists on the left change what we see as a plurality, at least according to polling, that exists for the two-state solution um, and to an extent support for civil rights into an electoral majority in the face of the very challenging data that uh, Dahlia just analyzed for us? Alison, I think that uh, there's no doubt that we're in a deep, in a deep crisis. I wouldn't use another term. But we are facing a huge opportunity. I, I, I believe. We, I mean, I think it's an opportunity for the Israeli political left, for the Israeli civil society, and for, the, for parts of the American Jewish community that are represented in this room. And maybe for the ties between the three, the Israeli political players, the, the civil society, and, and the American Jewish community. First of all, I think there is a vacuum that we need to fill. I mean, the fact that Meretz is no longer in the Knesset, the fact that labor shrinks to only to four seats, calls for new players to fill this vacuum. Civil society should raise its voice for sure, uh, because, you know, we don't have enough members of Knesset that they have the, the mic. I know part of it is technical or personal, but think about the fact that there's no one Jewish member of Knesset attending this J Street conference. Now, part of it is because there are very few Jewish members of Knesset that share the views of J Street. Um, we need to change, obviously, this, uh, this uh, reality. I think we can create new platforms. And mainly, my answer to your question, Alison, is that we need 
to present a very clear alternative. Now it is easier in a way because we know what's on the other side. I think it will be hard to claim now that we need to support a kind of an empty center, a kind of a vague third way it will become clear with the new government that there is no such a thing as occupation deluxe or there's no such a thing as occupation with democracy. And people will have to choose. This is our challenge to, to, to present the choice, including political figures. And I believe we as Geneva Initiative, as civil society, we need to, to present this demand. And the, op the two options are very clear for the future of Israel. Two visions. Either you want to stay in the territories or you want to get out of the territories. Now, believe me, I represent an organization that introduced a model for an agreement, and I support the two-state solution, and I believe in negotiations, and I understand the difference between unilateral withdrawal and an agreed withdrawal, and I understand the difference between a partial withdrawal and the full withdrawal and the interim and whatever. But today, with the new situation, there's no room or there's less room for nuances. And those all are nuances. Maybe this should be the common denominator for a new framework between Lapid and the joint list. Of course, it should be a Jewish and Arab uh, new platform. But this should not be, in my view, the flag. The flag should be, we don't want the territories to be part, part of the state of Israel. I'm proud of our achievements in education for peace with thousands of Israelis, in, in maintaining dialogue with Palestinians, but where we failed is mainly with the politicians in our own camp. Not in convincing them what to think, but in convincing them what to say. The fact that they adopted the language of hiding their own ideology, of hiding the conflict, as you rightly said, Alison, of not not dealing with the Israeli-Palestinian issue, it brought us to a situation where they played this game of hiding all the time. They played and they lost. They lost the game. Bibi is back. We have the most right-wing extremist government that we, we ever had. So it's time to, to stop the games and, and to even adopt an, even a new language, a new terminology. Every time I hear a politician from, let's say, the center and left, talking about the territories and calling them Judea and Samaria, I know that we are losing. Make the, the difference between the territories and Israel. Otherwise, it's all the same. You adopt the narrative. When people speak about separation between Israel and the Palestinians, like a magic word, what does it mean, separation? That is, does it mean that the Arabs will go away, that will leave the territories, or that settlers should should leave their homes. Say it in order to dictate the, the agenda. I, I, I believe that what we need to demand from people in the peace camp, in the political arena on our side, is just one thing. Say what you believe in, what you really think. You know, even for politicians, the truth can be sometimes an option. Sally, you belong to two groups whose vote had a huge effect on the results of this election. So. First, as a Palestinian Israeli, that's the first part of my question, I'd like you to speak to what you feel was behind the splintering of the joint list, why it existed in the first place, why it fell apart. Um, was the splintering inevitable or was it predictable? And 
The other part of my question is, what do you make of the effect, positive or negative, of having had an Arab party in an Israeli coalition government during the Bennett and Lapid years? Was Ram joining the government, was that a fluke? Do you think it changed anything permanently in the mindset of the relationship of, uh, of Israeli-Arab uh, parties in the, in the, political, uh, in the political landscape? Um, and then to your other identity as a young person, um, here in the United States, we saw young people voting to the left and having a tremendous effect on the election results. Uh, young voters played a major role in preventing the red wave from happening. And in Israel, by contrast, the trend was a mirror image. The youth vote was more religious, more tribal, more closed-minded, less hopeful. As an activist who engages with her peers, what do you think the explanation is for that, and why is it that when it comes to Israeli voters, the younger you are, the more right-wing you are? The, the split between, um, you know, Balad, Sami Abu Shahadi, the National uh, Palestinian Party, and uh, Ram and Khadash, um, I don't know if it was uh, unavoidable, but it also wasn't shocking. Uh, I really do think that they present, well, the three different parties right now, you know, Tal, Khadash, Balad, and uh, Iran, they do present the three different uh, models, approaches that we have, right? Completely, distinctly different uh, models. Um, Tal and Khadash, they are presenting uh, a model of partnership. In many ways, we, we can say many things about uh, uh, about uh, the limitations of that and the limitations uh, uh, that they pose as well with their with them leaning uh, nonetheless uh, uh, the the complexity of being also national Palestinian but also trying to navigate you know being in a Jewish uh, Arab political partnership but they are uh, trying to uh, uh, to work with the government maybe not in the coalition but they do. Cooperate. They do believe in a change within the Knesset through legislation. Um, and when they talk, I don't know if you uh, really uh, notice, but when Ahmad Tibi talks, when Ayman Audi talks, and when uh, Aida Touma talks, you know, they speak about not just about uh, uh, you know their problems and their legislations and their politics as exclusive to the Palestinian uh, minority in Israel. They do speak about the very unique problems of our uh, of, uh, of our society, as you know, uh, a national native minority uh, that is dis systematically discriminated against. With that being said, they do uh, try to appeal to the larger public. Um, you know, Aida Touma with uh, with the legislations for women's rights. Uh, you know, she doesn't just talk about Palestinian women's rights; she talks about women's rights. Ahmad Tibi always talks about uh, you know also improving things he was he actually was the one who offered and led uh, the minimum 40 campaign uh, that we uh, introduced as standing together to the um, to the Knesset and he was there in the lead actually providing it and actually talking and addressing the Jewish public you know you need to support this not just because uh, uh, you know, hundreds of uh, thousands of, of Palestinians are minimum wage earners, but because there are half of the workforce in Israel are, are uh, minimum wage earners. Uh, we saw that uh, with many things. Balad, uh, Sami Abu Shahadi, um, I think he presented, uh, the, the main thing there was really uh, just that pressure uh, on uh, entering, you know, do you want to work with 
יש עתיד. הוא הדיעיר לפיד, ואיימן עודי אמר, maybe we'll support from the outside. And Sami Abu Shadi, I think that was like the, the minute it cracked, and he's like, I don't want to support anyone that would create a government that doesn't um, actually acknowledge, you know, fully the, the, the occupation and doesn't acknowledge the national conflict within Israeli society and not just cross-border. I think Sami Abu Shahadi doesn't represent any kind of partnership in that sense, unfortunately. He does, however, present a very legitimate trend of, you know, of demand for national recognition of many young people. And we could see, you know, he didn't pass the threshold, but I think most people were very surprised by the amount of votes he got. He almost actually passed the threshold, even though he was very openly rejecting the system. He was rejecting the Israeli political system by running to the Knesset and, and telling them basically, you know, I'm gonna be there and I'm gonna reject your system from the inside as a Palestinian. And it resonated with hundreds, you know, with 130,000 people, Palestinians. And, and that's something that we can't, you know, deny. And we need to really understand how to get to these young people who voted for, for, for Sami Abu Shahadi under the very deep, you know, like need for recognition, for national recognition, but we also need to understand how do we, you know, we always talk about Arab-Jewish uh, partnership, uh, no, Arab uh, legitimization, right? Like to legitimize Arab, uh, Arab leaders to the Jewish public. We need to do exactly the opposite right now. We need to understand how we reach to all these Palestinian youth and legitimize Jewish-Arab partnership and actually tell a story that convinces them that Jewish-Arab partnership is necessary to build resistance within Israel against the occupation and for national recognition of Palestinians, uh, Palestinian minority in Israel. Now, Ram. Ram is, um, is the third <laughs> model uh, and the second partnership model which talks about uh, you know, just join the coalition at any cost. There's a disclaimer there. I was very critical about Ram uh, getting into the government at any cost. Uh, we could see last government, exiting government, was a very bad one, in my opinion. Uh, not just uh, nationally for Palestinians, by the way, where we saw continued house demolitions, we saw continued expansions of settlements, uh, we saw increased land confiscation in the, in the Negev, we saw insane police brutality against protests of these land confiscations in the Negev against the Bedouin uh, community. Uh, we really saw very, very bad things against uh, the Arab-Palestinian minority and Palestinians in, in the occupied territories. But economically and socially, it was a terrible government, even though the left was, <laughs> you know, in the coalition. What did they do? What did they advance? If you really look at, at the crises that were created within this very fragile coalition, it was created by the right, right? Citizenship law, the, the settlement uh, ifrat, you know, and actually cementing its status in the West Bank and uh, uh, right-wing agendas economically as well. The left didn't veto not once to actually pass things that are left, leftist agendas, progressive agendas. And I think Ra'am, in that sense, you know, they also accepted the conditional partnership of relinquishing the Palestinian identity completely. Uh, I do think, however, they still managed to speak about the day-to-day -day lives of the people. And I think that's what resonated with, with the young people who voted for them again.
Okay, and we need to realize that the people still voted for Ram, even though I think it was bad. It is important to understand that people, many people, didn't think it was bad in many sense because it did represent them. That does has, have to do with two things. One, that it represents them, you know, more and more people, young people in Israel, uh, Palestinians identify as more conservative, as more religious, and I do think that Ram gives them that answer. I think people perceive themselves as right and left in Israel because what is right and what is left is completely skewed in Israel, and how people, you know, perceive themselves is not necessarily true. Because if you look, for example, if you vote for Ram or you support Ram, you probably think you're left. But Ram is an Islamist right-wing government, okay? And, and then you think about uh, uh, what is left, really, in many ways. You know, if you think about Shas or Yahduta Tura, uh, Shas, okay? We can say a lot of bad things about Shas, but if you look at, at, the, at, their, uh, at their actual uh, politics, you know, economically and socially, they're, they're actually more left than Meretz or Labour, you know? <laughs> if you even look at Likud right now, if you look at the recent elections, Bibi Netanyahu was actually more, you know, what, what he offered the public was more progressive, more leftist than the left. He offered free education from the age of zero to three. He offered uh, a house uh, land purchasing subsidies for young couples. These things resonate to people. And for people who look at Bibi, a populist genius Bibi, <laughs> you know, and they think, oh, he's right and he's doing these things, I'm right too, even though these things are, these agendas, obviously he's not doing it because he's leftist or he thinks that this, he's doing it because he's a populist right leader, but we really need to understand how we reclaim the left agenda so we actually also break this, this skewed, this disturbed perception of what is left and what is right in Israel. Uh, and with that being said, I want to say, you know, for young people, uh, you said, uh, you know, we need to uh, not convince politicians what to think, but to convince them what to say. Why? Yair Lapid doesn't want to say occupation. Mirav Michaeli doesn't say occupation. Why would they listen to us? When they don't think, you know, when they are, when they don't think that it's beneficial to them, when they don't think that their base demands that. And the idea, regardless of the fact that I don't think that we need to be stuck on these kind of semantics at this point, um, by the way, I, I don't agree with you. But beyond that, if we want to actually impact the behavior of our politicians, we need to actually be able to impact you know, the, 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 the people on the ground to actually think differently. It's, it, you know, no politician will wake up one morning and be like, mm, you know what, I'm gonna, the airlapid is not gonna wake up and be like, you know what, I'm gonna talk to the joint list uh, tomorrow and maybe we can do, uh, you know, we can uh, talk about how we can, I don't know, what, what would the airlapid want to do with the I can't even think about what he would want to do with, with, the, with the joint list other than making sure that he, he beats Bibi, you know? He, he doesn't care, right? Um, and I'm not saying that because I, I really believe that we need new political leadership, first of all. And the ones that we have, we need to mobilize their public. We need to mobilize their base. Okay, that's the only way we can convince them. And you can't mobilize the base with words.
You can only mobilize the base with actually going, with grassroots work, with campaigns, with actually redefining words and redefining ideas and talking to the people with relevant things to them. Talking to young people who are now uh, identifying as right, who are very comfortable with the story of Jewish supremacy right now and who are very comfortable with the status quo. And you could see, you, you, please... Uh, let me know if I'm wrong, but according to polls, most people are, you know, they were comfortable with the status quo, and then that a percentage of people was actually decreased, and they wanted disturbance. A lot of people wanted disturbance, which I think why a lot of people voted for Ben-Gvir, because like, okay, like we're stuck, and Jewish supremacy sounds awesome, why not, you know? And he was normalized in many ways, and, and, and I think people really gravitated to that because we were stuck, and the left failed to talk to these people. And Yesh Atid, are ideologically empty. What did they talk about? Other than the fact that they didn't want Bibi, what did they talk about? What kind of relevant conversation did they have with the young people? Nothing. And we need to start talking to young people. And I don't think our politicians will do that. I, need, I, I think our movements will do that. I think our civil society will do that. Maybe our alternative media will do that, and we will do that through impacting traditional media and hopefully impacting the current uh, political leaders and hopefully building new political leaders that will be more relevant to the new and upcoming voters that will probably be also right, given the, the recent patterns. And we need to talk to these voters and create that conflict and actually give them an alternative of a progressive, real, relevant, politics that is relevant to their lives. When we talk about the occupation, it can't be about the moral issues of the occupation, but rather how the Israeli public has an interest in ending the occupation. Thank you, Sally. I will invite audience members to go up to the microphone to ask panelists questions. Can Dalia reflect on Gadi's suggestion in terms of can we mobilize Jewish Israelis around anti-occupation, or we need to go back to the idea of anti-Bibi, and this is the only way, because this is the way that it proved itself. What is the way that we can mobilize people? Because we must, we must protest. Uh, well, first of all, I wish I had a magical answer, because I don't, but I will say one thing. I think that the idea of mobilizing around anti-Bibi I think it's run its course. And the reason it's run its course is because it was never only about Raklo Bibi. It was always about what Bibi stands for. He stands for direction of the country. He stands for his policies. He stands for government corruption. Okay, he stands for political wheeling and dealing. He stands for lying. Those are the things that unify the non-BB camp, and I very much resist when people in Israel, primarily the Israeli commentators are calling it, they hate, you know, they're, they're, the we hate BB crowd. You know, I just don't buy it. Yeah, maybe people express themselves hatefully at this point, but they hate what he has come to stand for. I really don't think it's personal, you know? And so I think that trying to mobilize around you know, some sort of a sense of personal hatred. I think it's run its course, but I do think that we need to capitalize on the reality that there are a big, I, I would say at least half of, Israeli, of the Israeli voters who resent corruption at the top, who resent, you know, annexationist Jewish supremacy, who resent the all systems assault on the Israeli judicial branch because they know 
that Israel does not have sufficient grounding in its laws for equality, for human rights, for civil rights. Um, those are missing in the Israeli non-constitution. So I think that those are the kinds of things that we need to be able to unite over. We have to mobilize people over a vision. I agree with you that we need to talk about real life things. Sadly, in my experience, I've worked for any number of parties, nine campaigns, most of them for merits and labor and one for Mishutefet, in which we tried to focus on very specific issues. And you know what? The voters laughed at us and they were right. Not because those issues are not important to the voters, they are, but they have to be part of something that people can envision. They have to be part of a bigger theme. So what is that bigger vision? And that's where we have a problem. Can we just mobilize people around a bigger vision of peace in two states? Unfortunately, it has not worked. And I, again, this is the dilemma I have faced in every campaign I've worked on for center-left parties, which is do we talk about the occupation, two states, Matsava Medini, whatever you want to call it, no matter what language we use, the public doesn't want to hear it. However, I think that the unifying factor is staring us in the face. You said it, we all said it. There is no democracy with occupation. You can't support the Israeli judiciary because that's how we need to protect human rights and equality in Israel and justify robbing millions of people of their equality and human rights. You know, we have to be able to bring that contradiction to the fore we have to connect those things. We have a religious, theocratic, Jewish supremacist, triumphalist government now because Israelis are right-wing on the occupation. And now every secular Israeli or non-secular Israeli is gonna to have to worry about basic women's status. Because we're right-wing on the occupation, we voted for those parties. The occupation controls us more than we control Palestinians. Okay, not more, but a lot. <laughs> Okay, and I think that we, if we start to internalize that those two are inseparable, Israeli democracy, if it ever is to exist, and I am not claiming that it has existed up until now. We have democratic institutions, however, and we do have democratic norms. I don't think that the sum is bigger than, the part, whole, than, than all of those parts, but we, cannot, we must use them in order to crystallize to Israelis that you cannot separate. We will not be able to advance democracy in Israel and continue occupation. Just one remark. I don't talk about a lot about it because I feel like it's like almost like move on, may love. It's like trivial for me that we need to talk about the occupation in the Israeli politics. Uh, but I had a Jewish friend who told me, and it's like resonated with me, like my uterus is connected to the occupation now. And it was like very real. And, and it's definitely something that we need to capitalize on. We just need to make it relevant to the Israeli public and, and how it affects them. Hi, uh, my question is for uh, Dr. Shinlin. I hope I pronounced that name right. I'm really bad with names. Uh, Did it better than some people at this conference. <laughs> oh, <laughs> good to know. Uh, so my question was, in America, the left thinks a lot about strategic voting. Um, you know, I'm not going to vote for Bernie or Warren in the primary because I think Biden has a better chance of winning. And a lot of young people like myself really idealize proportional systems because in our minds, they kind of take away that need for strategic voting. But we saw with merits failing to get into the Knesset, um, do Israeli voters vote strategically in general, and did you see any evidence of that specifically in this election? The answer is absolutely yes. Israelis are constantly thinking strategically. In fact, I think I have a hard, well, let's say the first mapping that the average Israeli voter does is based on ideology, right, left, or center. From the perspective of the right, after Yeshatid, there's a cliff. That's it. From the perspective of the left, 
after Yeshatid or maybe National Unity Party with Benny Gantz, there's a cliff. And the centrists are somewhere in the middle. But after that, once they've mapped themselves, which they do unconsciously, they don't even have to think about it. We all know where we are on the right, left, center map. Very per tiny percentages don't answer that question. Everybody else, I mean, once they've done that mapping, it's all about who's gonna cross the threshold, do I want to support a bigger party? Do I want to support a smaller party? What if the coalition, what, what are they going to do in the coalition building stage, which is a lie because politicians lie about the coalition building stage. So yeah, it's very heavily strategically dominated, but I would say the first broad ranging issue is ideology. And that's not too different from the US. People know whether they're Republican or Democrat, and then they have to decide within that what their strategy is. I wouldn't get distracted. In other words, st strategic voting I think is part of pretty much any political system on some level, I think. The point is eyes on the prize, you know, ideas. Every political campaign is the political leadership of individuals, the party and what it stands for, the ideology and the issues that represents. And that's what we have to pull together, I think. Okay. Hi, so this is um, just like more of a curiosity about Jewish-Israeli society. Something that has really struck me as um, quite crazy is how almost Jews in the diaspora know more Palestinians and know more about Palestinians than uh, Jewish Israelis. How do you reach people, young people earlier because they're already at a starting point where there's a Zionist project and that's what they know. How do you address the earlier stages of the programming, I guess? So this is what we do in the Geneva Initiative on a daily basis, try to bring Israelis to meet Palestinians and to, to know about them, to listen to them. After every session with Palestinians, the, 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 the typical reaction of, of Jewish Israelis is that, you know, with you, I don't know, Noah or Ahmed or whoever is in the room, uh, with you we can make peace tomorrow. But the problem is that it's only you. Uh -huh. But it's not only her or, or him, obviously, but this is who they know. They don't know enough Palestinians, they don't meet enough, um, and, and they don't listen to them almost at all. As an Israeli society, we're used to, or we became used to talk with, mainly with ourselves. We don't even always listen to ourselves, but we talk with ourselves, for, for sure. <laughs> we don't listen to the others, for sure not, we don't listen to the Palestinians. And this is something we need to change uh, from, from, from scratch. And I think, I think you can be a facilitator in that. Often a third party can help in this kind of a, of a dialogue. And American Jews who care about Israel, who care about Palestinians, who care about the relationship between the two, can be part of this uh, triangle. So I, I, I believe it's, it's very important for us back home to, to listen to each other. Um, I, I just want to take this opportunity and maybe to answer uh, uh, Sally's question before, why, why Lapid and Michaeli will listen to us apropos listening to each other. I think they will listen to us, and they, none of them uses the term occupation, as you rightly said. They, they, they may listen to us because they lost, because their way failed. They tried not to listen to us. It didn't work. They, they gave up, as you rightly said, on all their agendas during the last government, not only in action, but even in words, just in the sake of get, getting rid of Bibi, okay? They failed. Bibi is back. It didn't work. So the, they can learn from other leaders in our camp that you know when they reach the conclusion when they say that what we're saying, after they're retired. 
Then all of a sudden they discovered, and, and I can give you a list of leaders of the Labour Party and others, why we didn't speak enough about the issue that really is the number one issue. But I want to remind us all, who is, was behind the slogan of there's no partner? It was not a Likud leader. It was a leader of the Labour Party. Who stopped talking about a unilateral withdrawal from the West Bank? This is not my plan. This was the plan of Olmert of others and adopted the narrative of the right. You spoke about Gaza. Who adopted the narrative that the, the withdrawal from Gaza was a is a failure because we got rockets after, after we withdraw as we didn't get rockets before? Who, who adopted this narrative? Who doesn't speak about leaving the territories? It, it is our camp, and, and, and in the past they didn't listen to us because they thought that they have this magic that they will attract people from the center from the right. The fact is that if you speak right-wingish, then everybody speaks right-wingish because <laughs> the right speaks this language. The right moved to the right, and the left moved to the right in an effort to to attract the, the center of the right, instead of saying what, what they think. So I think the, the trend that Dalia described, I know the demographics, and I, and the, I know the, the data about young people, I think it's reversible. I, I think we should not give up, and we cannot give up. Uh, and here I totally agree with Sally. The, there is a fight mainly uh, on, on, the, on the minds of, of the young people. We need to talk to them. And we need not less than that to listen to them. We have to also recognize that there have been people on the center and the left that have tried to speak very openly. We had Yair Golan with us yesterday. I don't know if he's here today. He speaks very openly. You can't speak more openly than him about the issues of occupation. And Sipi Livni, by the way, for some years already, okay, when she was already in opposition, but from within her party platform was basically saying the same things from the moment they were in opposition and has been very forthright. I, and, you know, the funny thing is, from the voters' perspective, they say, well, we agree with everything Merritt says, except they're so far left, and all they talk about is the conflict. So you and I think they don't talk about it enough, but A, some of them do, and B, the voters think they do. And so we have a gap of perceptions here. I'm not saying we should hide it. I mean, like, I'm arguing we need to ha put it into a bigger and newer understanding of the the vast problem here that is not a matter of a security, I think the, the biggest victory of the right is they made it into a security issue, only a security issue. You know, I, we all agree that we need to have it on the table. We all agree that, I think we agree that politicians should absolutely say what they mean, they're more effective. But let's not diminish the problem. For, and, and of course we know who's responsible. It's, it's all, you know, center left and right. But the problem is that we are starting right now with between 12 and 14% of the Jewish population who considers themselves left-wing. It's not gonna grow overnight. Among the total population, when you add Palestinian citizens, you get to 18%, 20 on a good day. That is the starting point. Maybe it's reversible, but we haven't found how to reverse it based on everything we've done for the last 20 years. I agree with you that they failed. However, even if they realize that they failed, it doesn't guarantee them realizing that our way is the good way. And that's not, there's no guarantee that they would actually do that. And I do think it's our, uh, still, it is our ability and our, our responsibility as a civil, uh, civil society and, and, and peace movement to give that alternative language and think of ways to actually c 
convince them to do that, and it can't happen just like that. They need to be, you know, nothing can guarantee them to, to convince like that. And about education and encounter, I'm, yeah, third-party facilitation, yeah, might be helpful uh, in many ways. Uh, all these like encounter things can be helpful. They're amazing organizing. Like I think you know you have Iramim who does like you know um, uh, tours in in Jerusalem. There are breaking the silence who do in amazing uh, things. Uh, and by the way, like we we are realizing now that we are sending actually Palestinians. <laughs> members of, of standing together with tours with 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 the breaking the silence because they also don't know about the occupation they know they're pissed they don't know why honestly like and 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 we really need to educate that again and about the encounter it really needs to happen again it can't be about narratives it really cannot be about narratives it just doesn't work it doesn't work we need to have these narratives present but it needs to be about joint struggle, not just about partnership and, and, and bridging the gaps of narratives. And I need to put that on the, on the table. Um, one question is, tell us about the word security and where it fits into the ideology of young people in Israel. We are so stuck like in the world, in the framing of, of the right, and we're just so stuck reacting to it, and we need to start reclaiming words. And I think once we realize what security means and actually challenge whether people in Israel are, in fact, secure, you know, with maintaining the occupation and with deepening the occupation or not. Um, I also think that we need to expand security to other areas, you know, not just physical security and national security, but also, you know, food security and income security and, and, and uh, familial security and all uh, domestic security and these things. And I do think that we have a chance to actually reclaim those kind of words that have been monopolized uh, by, uh, by the right and they have been winning with them. Uh, and I really think uh, that we need to start reclaiming them, absolutely. In Philadelphia in 79, I was invited to the New Outlook Symposium. I knew nothing about that. I listened to Palestinians for the first time in my life, and I learned their stories. And for the last 42, 43 years, I've been in the trenches confronting Ariel Sharon and Moshe, General Moshe Aaron Zeli Wiesel about treatment of Palestinians. I'm getting there. Question. <laughs> I don't want to lose hope. I, I wanted to say at the beginning that I value the voices at arts. I don't want to lose hope. But I did a countdown for the last year till the 50th year of the occupation. And I don't really can't comprehend that we're at 54 now. Is there anything new, a new approach, a new idea? I really don't feel like anything is ever going to end this, and we're just stuck. Do you have any new ideas? First of all, thank you very much for, for your question. It's the same question that I'm asking myself every day when I get up in the morning, but I, I, but I want to, to answer you, what, what's new? What is new, apparently, is the new government in Israel, which creates, in a kind of absurd way, a huge opportunity. And we should not miss it. I believe we have many challenges. I will point very briefly only two challenges, okay, that are new. One, due to the, the new government, we need to, 
to show and to prove that the, the challenge is urgency, it's urgent. Make no mistake, the coalition agreements that are being signed are agreements about annexation. This is annexation de facto, to give the power to Smotrich's party on, 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 on dealing with the settlers or with the, with the Palestinians in the West Bank, this is annexation. And it is, it's happening now. So the next few weeks, the next few months would be crucial. The second challenge, which is now, again, new, due to this government, is to make it personal, okay? Look at what's going on in Israel. There is protest, somehow people are waking up and organizing, I don't know if it's civil disobedience or something else, the resistance. Why? Because it is personal, because they heard that, that their kids, if they go to school, they will get all kind of, excuse me, crazy lunatic programs organized by irrational, to say the least, people, ministers or deputy ministers. Because the people, uh, the, the anti-LGBT agenda can be personal because some of us are, belong to the gay community or some of us have uh, family members and some of us are relative or whatever, we know, we know it can be personal, all of us, so, so we say you should, we should stop it. Even Netanyahu says it. We need to make this annexation personal. Now, it is obviously personal for Palestinians. It will hurt them. It's obviously personal for the settlers. It will benefit them. Our challenge is to make it personal for people who live in Tel Aviv or Haifa or Be'er Sheva, but also to people who live in Philadelphia, in New York and Miami. Because the, the Israel, yeah, is the state of all its citizens, should be, for sure, with equal rights, but is also the state of the Jewish people. So it's your own state. So I, I, I really would say, take it, take it seriously, take it urgently, and take it personally. You know, there's an opportunity, and I think that, you know, it's overlooked, but we, we are, it's as bad as it got in the history of Israel's politics, but I think our shared society, our civil society, we, there's an ecosystem that is being built that is stronger than ever, and we, I, I truly believe that if also here in the U.S. talking about your, your role, I don't know who here needs to hear this, we need to be funded heavily in the next couple of years. <laughs> and, and we really, we have the infrastructure of shared society, of progressive movements, of amazing organizations working on the ground, who actually have the infrastructure to be able to combat this. And, and we are there, and there is something new. It is definitely new, and I think with this new opportunity and this crisis, which is an opportunity, we can actually combat it, definitely. Sorry, one just last word. And tomorrow, I know many of you go to the Hill. Take it to the Hill, take it to the White House, take it to your communities, and tell them that the annexation that Secretary Blinken here in the conference opposed to is, is taking place. It's happening, it's not a theory. So when you take it to the Hill tomorrow, when you take it to the White House, to the administration, to your communities, to your leaders, tell them that it's not a, a theoretical future. It's happening today, it will happen tomorrow, if you don't raise your voice and take the necessary action. And this is new. So to wrap up, I think we are in a very changing political landscape in Israel right now. I think we've dove, we, we dove pretty die, uh, down deep into, uh, into what's going on. Just to close with something that I saw quickly on social media while I was preparing the session 
from one of my friends said a friend of hers who voted Likud came up to her and was horrified at what's going on with the new government with Genvir Smotrich and said, wait a minute, I voted Likud, I wanted Bibi back, but I didn't sign up for this. And uh, an American friend of mine compared it to the situation of Trump voters and some of the, the shifts that we've seen after having experienced the, the Trump era and saying, well, maybe when Israelis get a taste of the abyss of a truly right-wing government, it's going to cause some sort of shakeup in the electorate. We don't know which direction that shakeup will take us, but things are definitely dynamic, changing, and, uh, and worth continuing to watch and pay attention to, as I'm sure all of you do and will continue to do. Thank you so much to my panelists. You are all excellent. And um, let's enjoy the rest of the conference. And that wraps up this special episode of Haaretz Weekly. Thanks to the panelists at the conference and to the teams at Haaretz and J Street who made this happen, with a special thanks to my editor, Nahara Malkin. I'm Allison Kaplan-Summer, and until next week, Shalom from Tel Aviv. <laughs>